So, I mean, many of your listeners probably are aware that China took a very hard-line policy uh, in its effort to sort of fight COVID. Uh, that meant that it locked, uh, not only did it uh, require testing of everyone, if you tested positive, you were put, as you say, into kind of camps. Uh, you couldn't, for example, quarantine at home. You had to go to a state facility. Um, and, you know, China, in fact, would shut down entire cities uh, uh, in, in an effort to sort of fight uh, COVID. What's happened, though, is, of course, when you shut down entire cities, is you uh, make it very difficult for people to earn a living. Um, and what was happening was that uh, people were just struggling to feed their families as a result of these COVID policies. That led to widespread pro- protests, protests that we haven't seen since 1989. And uh, Xi Jinping, the leader, um, recently, uh, you know, uh, lifted some of these uh, lifted some of these restrictions, and that is, has caused a lot of concern now as well because China hasn't, or the cities, I should say, have weren't prepared for the lifting of those kinds of sanctions. And what we're seeing now is a kind of chaos within China. There's been uh, a huge uptick in the number of people who've contracted COVID, in part because the virus, the, although China imposed vaccines, the vaccines are outdated. They don't, uh, they don't work against the more recent Omicron, and China didn't take any steps to sort of deal with that problem. And so what we're seeing now is that there's this huge uptick in the number of uh, COVID cases, and a lot of those cases really are older people, vulnerable people, and hospitals have been overrun. We've seen an uptick in the number of funeral home uh, bookings, crematoriums in Beijing and other places, and there's a huge just a widespread concern that China's 1.4 billion people uh, are going to lose another 1 million to COVID. It's interesting, Mark. It's it's the mental state of that country. Then there's a couple of aspects here I wanted to bring up. One was them not adjusting with their vaccine. They had their own vaccine. We're going to shield you out. We're going to work it our way. And as you just mentioned, now that's been counterproductive for this country. And the other two on the mental aspect, protests like this just don't happen in China. This really caught my eye. It did, and it wasn't something that I think the Chinese uh, reckoned with as well. They didn't really, uh, you know, they didn't, they weren't prepared for that kind of uh, protest. And I think that it really um, shook the government. I think it shook Xi Jinping's uh, government. And I think the difficulty, Ray, is, as I said, when you lift the uh, restrictions, um, if you, when you, in a country that's very top down, that's very hierarchical, and you essentially let local governments deal with the aftermath on their own, you have a lot of chaos. And what we're seeing is that in China, many local governments are just unable to kind of deal with the, just the enormous mass increase in the number of COVID cases. Hospitals aren't prepared for it. And, it, and that China doesn't really have a system to uh, inoculate uh, its uh, residents uh, with the new vaccines. They don't have that. And so they're trying to get that started. But here we're talking about a country with 1.4 billion people. So it's a huge, huge challenge for the government. Dr. Mark Casal with us from Kent State University here at WAKR. So, Mark, what's the concern level with COVID on a big uptick there with knowing how small this world is and knowing that that was the origin of COVID-19? Well, again, I mean, I think in China, the 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 
the, the health concerns are spilling into the economic and political concerns, as we've seen in other countries, right? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, we saw that in the United States. I mean, even though China, uh, you know, uh, will likely see at least a million COVID deaths, that's about where the United States was. <laughs> you know, the U.S. lost also about a 1.1 million uh, to COVID. Um, I think that, again, China's uh, health problems are spilling into its economic issue, uh, problems, and I think you know, China's trying to adjust, but in an, in an authoritarian regime like China, it's just very, very difficult to sort of quickly um, navigate, uh, you know, the, the, the solutions that are needed to, uh, to figure it out. And so, as I said, what's happening is that local governments are really scrambling to figure it out. The Chinese are signing agreements with, uh, you know, national, uh, international uh, pharmaceutical companies to try to come in and uh, uh, vaccinate the country. But again, we're talking about 1.4 billion people, many of them are very, very vulnerable. With us this morning is Dr. Mark Cassell from Kent State University, professor of political science. So, Mark, let's take us into the Ukraine where Russia and the Ukraine is on this war. It's reading over the weekend. Ukraine is doing the best they possibly can with their youth of some semblance of normal. But also you've got the cold conditions now becoming a factor as far as Russia invading and the gas line supplies and the infrastructure here. Yeah, I mean, you've touched on it, right, Ray? I mean, I think the one of the more brutal aspects of this uh, war is that Russia is attacking um, the infrastructure in, in, uh, in Ukraine. It's making it difficult for families and individuals to heat their homes, to uh, give them uh, access to clean water and sewers. And so it's taking its toll on, on the Ukrainian people. Um, and I think it's just, you know, again, a, sort of a hallmark of the brutality of the Putin regime. Um, but, you know, what's interesting, Ray, I think there was a great piece in the New York Times over the weekend that really underscored how poorly the war has been going for Putin and for Russia. Uh, it sort of underscored not only the, the sort of the poor planning on the part of Russia, but the, just the complete miscalculation by the Russians um, and just the, the just how incredibly inefficient and un, uh, poorly functioning their military was. And, um, you know, and and again, we're talking about a country that is run by a dictator, Vladimir Putin. And I think in a dictatorship, you can get away with a lot. You don't have to be answerable to your population. And so one of the things that sort of came out of that piece was in addition to the uh, poor planning uh, in Russia, but was a commitment apparently by Putin to just continue to lose troops, to lose uh, to lose his military no matter what in order to save face. And that's very, very depressing and disheartening too. Mark, we're about 10 months into this war in Ukraine. Have the goals changed for Russia? I asked that question of what needs to happen now. Here we are 10 months into this thing for some sort of resolution? You know, it's difficult to know. I mean, I think that the, I think one thing that's clear is that Russia has already lost no matter uh, where, uh, you know, where the line is. Russia has suffered a a significant strategic defeat. Um, You know, uh, their their military capabilities have been damaged. Their international reputation is damaged. Obviously, their economy is damaged. So on one level, Russia has clearly lost. I think there are really three options. One is, you know, this continued stalemate that Russia sort of makes gains here, Ukraine makes gains there, and no one gets the upper hand. The second option is that Russia advances. I don't think that's likely, but, um, you know, given their 
you know, they have a, certainly a lot more weapons and they have nuclear weapons. So the second option is that uh, Russia sort of makes continued but incremental advances. And the third is that Ukrainians advance, uh, that Ukrainians make larger gains. They push the Russians back to sort of pre-February lines and possibly even before that, maybe even before pre-2014 lines when Russia uh, took uh, Crimea. Um, I think a lot of it depends on NATO. I think a lot of it depends on uh, the U.S. and NATO support, particularly in providing air defenses. And I think, you know, my guess is that, you know, um, uh, an incremental stalemate is, is likely, but I think everyone has been wrong about both the Ukrainians and Russians. And so I think any kind of prediction is very, very uh, sketchy at this point. Mark, you kind of slid me right into my next question. You got your A-game working, my friend, and that is NATO. Are they still as strong as they were in regards to supporting the Ukraine as they were 10 months ago because of the the fuel, because of the infrastructure that, you know, Russia can command from those European nations? Are they still staying strong with their support? I think one of the things that Putin, one of the many failures of Vladimir Putin and Russia has been to underestimate uh, NATO as well as the European Union. One of the things that's sort of striking is the ways in which NATO has really unified. Uh, And one of the characteristics of that um, is that you've got two new members who are ready to join NATO, Sweden and Finland, which Finland has a very large border with Russia. And so certainly that's not something that the Russians counted on. Um, you're certainly right to point out that the cost of the war uh, has been enormous in uh, among NATO countries, particularly Europe, uh, where you've seen just huge spikes in the price of gas and oil. That said, you're also sort of seeing in Europe just um, a, 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 a transition from a dependence on Russia, and you're seeing uh, European leaders particularly uh, meet and, and sign agreements agreeing not to overpay for Russian gas and to wean themselves away from Russia, uh, Russian uh, gas and oil. And I think, you know, that's having a huge impact. And I think the, the question isn't so much this winter, which is brutal, uh, but apparently there's enough gas and oil to cover what Europe needs for this winter. The real question is what happens in the, in the, in the winter after this. Um, and that's still up in the air. And, uh, but I think one of the things that's sort of striking is the way in which both Europe and the NATO have remained fairly unified in the wake of this war.